0: You're listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast. The one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello all and sundry and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. So I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that I'm recording this introduction in the traditional lands of the Wotjobaluk, Wergaya, Juppagalk, Jadwa and Jadawadjali people, of what today is known as Horsham in northwest Victoria. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. Thirteen years ago, our then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said sorry on behalf of the nation to Australia's Indigenous Nations. Since then, you could be forgiven for thinking whether any of this apology has sunk in with the various mining, road construction, and other business-as-usual industries that continue to plunder sacred lands that were never ceded. In Western Australia, Rio Tinto blasted the and Gorge Caves, 46,000 years of human cultural significance, gone in an instant with the help of some explosives. As I was recording this episode, I learnt that mining giant BHP have recklessly harmed a Bajima sacred site in the Pilbara region in the same state. And don't think this is a peculiar West Australian phenomena. I've just today passed Ararat in Victoria near the sacred Jab Birthing trees that are under relentless threat by the state government to be removed in order to widen a road. This absurdity is straight out of the plotline of a Douglas Adams novel. In the eyes of the dominant neoliberal culture, nothing is sacred from mining, fracking, road widening, grazing, general exploitation. How could it be when growth on a finite planet is a modus operandi and any other way of being or relating to the land is seen as anti-development, anti-progress, radical and even dangerous? Hence, the ongoing and relentless displacement of First Nations people, culture and land, whether we are talking in Brazil, West Papua, West China or indeed West Australia. I personally feel that the conversation around post-growth, degrowth, and indeed population and migration policy is lacking First Nations perspectives, both in public discourse and in the literature. However, if you scratch under the surface, I believe there are voices to be heard on these issues. A couple of years ago, I ran a seminar at the Sustainable Living Festival with Richie Allen Director of Traditional Owners' Aboriginal Corporation. The seminar was titled Population, Indigenous and Environmental Perspectives. Richie has ties with Sustainable Australia Party in the Australian Capital Territory and it is through SAP's Kelvin Thompson that I was connected to my next guest, Dr Anne Polina. Dr Anne Polina is Chair of the Matawara Fitzroy River Council, traditional owner and a guardian of the Matawara Lower Fitzroy River. She works tirelessly to ensure that the Matawara Fitzroy River in West Australia's Kimberley region, one of the world's last remaining isolated and relatively unspoilt wonders, never suffers the same fate as the Murray-Darling River system. Anne also shares broadly similar views with me in regards to degrowth, population, and migration policy, so we explore this in the interview within the context of protecting an environmentally and spiritually sacred land from being yet another casualty of development. We discuss Indigenous First Law, which are guidelines to hold responsibility to one's connection to place, which I believe to be critical for both reconciliation and reimagining a post growth society. Finally, I asked Anne a perspective on Indigenous and non Indigenous relations and how we can be better allies. So, one of the downsides of the realization that comes with waking to the fact that one is born into an industrial unsustainable culture is that one becomes more acutely aware of the gulf between Indigenous and industrial world perspectives. Given that Anne and I were navigating some deep and difficult issues during the interview, I observed that I was a lot less freewheeling as a host and kept to the written questions, and it was a bit more stiffer than usual. However, as I was more subdued, Anne absolutely soared during this interview. She is such an engaging and mesmerising public speaker. As an academic, she successfully bridges academia and First Nations wisdom to present ideas in a way that connects to everyone, no matter who or where you happen to be. Following my interview with Anne, I play an excerpt of the musical Dua de force, which is Yimaduwara, from the local artist Kalaji. Yimaduwara means belonging to the Madawara Matawara fitzroy River, such a perfect soundtrack for this episode. And I am absolutely honoured to be sitting here with Anne Polina from the Matawarra-Fitzroy River Council.
1: So um, I'm just saying hello, good day in my Nigana language and that I'm speaking to you all on Yaru and Jugan country in Broome and that it's a great day to have a conversation with Michael because we've been trying to catch up for some time.
0: Fantastic. And thank you for sharing us, giving us a welcome to country um, and sharing us a few words. It, it always amazes me how, you know, we talk of reconciliation and yet so few of us know even say say hello in the First Nations tongue in the land in which we stand. So thank you so much for um, sharing that. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little about yourself, your work, your passions and what drives you.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity to share with the listeners. Um, This is not a job, it's a destiny. And I've been born into this role. Um, The history was my great-grandmother was brought in after a massacre in the St George Range into Nucumbar. So I've come from a very strong uh, lineage and heritage of Indigenous women privileging their voices and trying to get it out there and bringing reason and logic into the world that we currently occupy today and um, yeah I think it's very very important that we're saying that it's an opportunity to share the wisdom of Indigenous people and bring that into how we redefine who we are as Australians today. So from that perspective very very strong um, matrilineal line. My sister was actually the first social justice commissioner in Western Australia and she did some amazing work in her lifetime and um I'm doing this work and my dream is that my daughter will not have to continue this journey the way we are doing it, that we will have reached a point in our nation where we truly believe reconciliation is required. But part of that reconciliation is obviously the truth telling that needs to come in with this. Um, and I think there's, it's very, very exciting. I feel very, very positive about how fellow Australians are um, looking at how do we do business differently with Indigenous people, but most importantly, how do we do business differently on our country and our nation, Australia.
0: Now, you're chair, I believe, of the Mutawarra Fitzroy River Council, um, which appears incredibly active and dynamic to me. From a look at your website, I see videos, music, newsletters, parliamentary submissions and much, much more. So how did the council start and what are the main objectives?
1: Yeah, well back in 2016, all of the Indigenous nations who are connected with the Fitzroy River came together in Fitzroy Crossing and, came together and put together a declaration called the Fitzroy River Declaration. So there was a conversation started in 2016 when we started to look at um, the pressures of development on the Fitzroy River and how could Aboriginal people be involved and privilege our voices as the guardians of the Fitzroy River in that process. And then um, about 2017, 2018, we were brought together again and There was a decision made to stand in solidarity and form the Fitzroy River. It was very, very interesting because at one of the stakeholder meetings, which was um, coordinated by the state government, one of our senior elders, who was very quiet and unassuming in the room, rose and stood up and he looked across the room and saw everybody debating about how they were going to use the water in the Fitzroy River. And he stood up and he said, you came you made us slaves, you took the land, and now you're back for the water. What is going to be left for blackfellas? And so that was a very important stand that he took. And from that we formed the Matawara Fitzroy River Council, which is a about six and soon to be seven, possibly nine nations standing in solidarity for the river. But the most important point was a unity pathway. The challenge was to stand with one mind and one voice. So there's been a very big investment with the Matawara Fitzroy River Council with with the nations coming together and making a decision, one, that there needed to be reconciliation and healing amongst the different native title groups before we could get to a point of solidarity. So one of the things that people know is that native title can sometimes be very, very conflictual And so what we're saying is that in order for the Matawara Fitzroy River Council to to have one vision, one dream and to work in solidarity, we need to to have unity at that level. So there's been a big investment of all of the nations coming together um, and starting on this unity pathway of, of healing and reconciliation amongst the nations first before we could have this strategic position in terms of going forward. So we've invested heavily in our own leadership, our own reconciliation, and we've been able to tell a very positive story um, about how we need to be listening to what's happening in the Murray-Darling Basin and not make the same mistakes here in the Kimberley on the Fitzroy River. So from that perspective, we have now become a registered entity. We have a um, a corporation, we have a set of guidelines and rules but most importantly, we have amazing partners that work with us to produce this body of work. So we have filmmakers, we have storytellers, we have uh, legal scholars, we have researchers, all working together to generate the body of evidence that we believe is vital in terms of saying that the Fitzroy River is, one, globally unique, it's national heritage listed, but also a very important point is that the Matawarra or the Fitzroy River is the largest registered Aboriginal cultural heritage site in Western Australia. So going on the Dugan Gorge story, what we're saying is that this is a time to get this water planning, water governance um, and, you know, the regulation of the river are right. We believe that this is a river that is there for everyone. We say that whether you come for one night, one week or one lifetime, once you've come and experienced the Fitzroy River, you're always a part of it. So there's been you know, a whole lot of different forms of capital that have influenced the way uh, we've developed, but also amazing people from right around the nation, but also globally who are standing in solidarity because the Fitzroy River, as I said, is not only globally unique, but it's also one of the world's 10 most important rivers in the world. It is also planetary unique when we're talking about the solar system and what's across this globe as well. So it is a very, very special river. And we believe that it belongs to all Australians because it's national heritage listed um, and that we need to find a way of how do we not repeat the mistakes of the Murray-Darling Basin and start to really factor in the conversations around climate change and how we start to transition to the new economies that are going to provide an opportunity for all of our young Australians to have a full and rich life going into the future?
0: So a river for everyone, not just for the cattle of a few mining magnates. So the Matawarra Fitzroy River is located in a really raw yet magical part of the world that by global standards at least, still feels relatively less touched by the relentless tendrils of development. The river system holds environmental importance and also deep sacred importance for um, the six Indigenous nations were united in the Matawara Council, as you have mentioned. Uh, from what I've read and seen of your work, the environmental and sacred aspects of the river are intertwined and therefore they are not mutually exclusive. So I'd just like you to tell me a little bit more about your perspective on the importance of the um, river system, which you've already touched on, but maybe um, a little bit more of the you know, spiritual significance of it too.
1: One of the things um, listeners may not be aware, of, but I've just submitted my second PhD, and it's all about the river. It's about the, the laws that have been guiding us from the beginning of time as the best water guardians and water managers in the world to care for this system. Um, we've produced a, an amazing documentary, which we've just returned from Perth, the film is actually called The Serpent's Tale, and what that story does is that it brings all of the voices of the different nations together because we hold one law for the Fitzroy River, Walangari law. And those law, that law or that rule were given to us from the beginning of time of how we work together as a united uh, guardians along that system to be able to care for the river. So we've made this amazing film, which is all about our spirituality, our kinship, our connectedness to each other, but most importantly, our relationship with the Fitzroy River. We believe that the Fitzroy River has a right to life. And that's very, very important because one of the things we've also produced are two significant reports that can be found on our website. The first is a report called Matawarra Country, which shows 150 years of intensive colonial invasive development. And what it shows actually is a bit like what uh, Bruce Pascoe and Bill Gamage were sh- saying was, they've shared that these are the settler diaries that give you a picture of what our world looked like when it was first seen by settler society in terms of what was here. And so the picture that's painted in that report by Dr McDuffie shows a world of utopia that there was abundance and plenty, that when the settlers came in, the people were laughing, they were sharing food, they were laying down, telling stories and singing songs, and even so gifting in terms of giving one of the young men to guide the settlers up the river. So we've come from a world of plenty, of abundance, of peace, which really maintained the harmony that we have with the Fitzroy River, our spirituality, our identity, When I introduce myself, I go, which means that I am a woman who belongs to the Fitzroy River, not in terms of property rights, but having a relationship over multiple generations, tens of thousands of years of my family living and working with other indigenous nations to what we call hold the river, to be cautious and careful that the river not only has a relationship with human beings, but it has a relationship with the birds, with the fish, with the animals, with the plants. And our perspective is that after 150 years of invasive intensive colonial development, we believe that it is time for just development on just terms. We believe that there is an opportunity to create a mechanism which we've been advocating very, very strongly, which is a minimum standard of having a statutory framework whereby all projects are on the table. What do you want to do in the Fitzroy River catchment? Where is your science and your indigenous knowledge to show that what you intend to do will not negatively impact on the river or the people who make up the majority of the population in the Fitzroy catchment? So we believe that a catchment management authority is the minimum standard to guide all development. So what we're saying is that we need to understand cumulative impacts of development. We need to understand what is currently happening on country from climate change. I live on country. What we are seeing already before the wet season was water scarcity, food insecurity. All of these things are impacting on our lives now. And so we see our world as global citizens. We see our world in terms of how are we as guardians of the Fitzroy River factoring in climate change? Where is climate change taking us? What is the world showing us? There was a real call a couple of weeks ago, one of the eminent uh, United Nations persons saying that we should be declaring, our nation states should be declaring a climate crisis. We should be transitioning away from fossil fuels into what we are calling on the Fitzroy River, the forever industries. The fact that we have this amazing energy system, which is renewable energy, which is free, that we should be looking at how do we create a transition, a just transition for those that are working in um, the mining industry? What does a new economy look like? What does a just energy transition look like? How do we upskill people in this industry to say that we can tool up for renewable energy? that we're not forgetting you, that you have families that we care about. So where is the investment to lead our nation to a just energy transition? How do we support those people working in the mining industries, particularly in oil and gas? We all know that everybody wants to have the same thing. Everybody wants to reach their full potential. Everybody wants to be able to create a future for our young people. And so I don't see the leadership at the national level in regards to how we are transitioning to a just energy transition. So at the moment, all we can see from the industries that are being touted and being invested into is foreseeable harm, particularly around fracking.
0: So just like anywhere else in the world of the remaining wilderness, the Matawara fitzroy River is under threat of development with nothing seemingly learnt from the ecological disaster that has befallen the Murray-Darling River system. Additionally, the past couple of years have witnessed the destruction of the 46,000-year-old Yukan Gorge, cave for mining, and the sacred trees at Xapurong country cut down or under threat for a highway extension. This is almost Douglas Adams level absurdity here. It seems not a lot has changed since Kevin Rudd apologised on behalf of the nation in 2008. It appears that under the dominant culture, uh, nothing is ultimately sacred in a paradigm where everything is bought, sold and appropriated. What, from your perspective, Anne, are some of the deeper underlying issues going on here, uh, which results in history uh, repeating itself over and over again?
1: Yeah, no, that's a very important question. And um, on Friday, I had the opportunity of being called as a witness to the senators who are holding the Jugan inquiry. And the first point I made is that this is not about the Jugan Gorge cave. This is about the failure of our nation to recognize that indigenous people are the first people and that we need to come to a point in this nation whereby we can have truth telling and true reconciliation and healing. And all of the indigenous leaders I know are very, very clear that this reconciliation and healing is not to be seen as a punishment. It is to be seen as how do we learn from the stories that we have about colonisation? Because what I find with the Jugan Gorge case is that our processes, our policy and our laws, whether it's the EPBC Act, whether it's the Native Title Act, the recent um, inquiry into the Productivity Commission with the National Water Initiative, whether it's looking at the Murray-Darling Basin, our laws are no longer fit for purpose to protect the environment, to protect Indigenous people. So what we're saying is that all of our processes are broken and the evidence is overwhelming in terms of the laws that I've just spoken about. So I think one of the most important things is that we do need to come to a point, and I talk about this, I, I come to a point where I think that we need to redefine who we are as a nation. This is not just about, oh, how do we fix the Aboriginal problem? I think we need to be brave as fellow Australians and say, how do we look at transitioning to a just republic at some point? And that we need to be looking at how do we rewrite the constitution that is reflective of the true values and the ethics of fellow Australians in modernity right now? So there's lots of things that we need to look at. The first point being is that we as Aboriginal people, we do not separate land, water and people. It's intrinsically entwined. And yet the way we govern and manage and develop our laws and regulations is that everything is siloed. This is about land. This is about water. This is about the environment. And that framework does not work. And this is what we're saying right now with the inquiry not just into Jukin, but the EPBC Act, the National Water Initiative in regards to the Productivity Commission, all of those things are saying is that we need a new way and new mechanisms for looking at how do we redefine who we are as Australians. So this is not just a story of um, how do we drill down and look at Indigenous people, which is so critical in terms of the, the transformation that needs to happen, but it's really time to redefine who we are as Australians. And one of those big issues is the need to look at what does local government look like? So when we were talking about constitutional reform for Aboriginal people, there was also another point on that for reform, which was about local government. So having been in local government, having been on the journey of local government, I think we should be transitioning to more regional governance mechanisms whereby we can look at how do we develop strategies, economies, ways to live in harmony and balance within regional context rather than continuously being dictated to by the state governments. So I think there's a real appetite for better bioregional planning where everyone can be at the table, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And I think what's really interesting in terms of our social demographics is that, one, in 2021, we still have 60% of our fellow Australians who have not met an Indigenous person, who have not spoken to an Indigenous person, So I think that's really important. But the other interesting perspective in terms of body of evidence is that 60% of Australians now come from multicultural backgrounds. So we have now got an influence in this nation where it's not all about whiteness in inverted commas, but it's about pluralism. How do we live in a world? How do we live in a nation that is accommodating of everybody's worldview? How do we privilege the voice of anybody who is vulnerable? So it's that sort of conversation. And um, I think it's very, very important at this particular time because there is a conversation I know by many people, is Australia full? And I think this is a very, very important question in regards to population density and sustainability as a nation. And it's sort of like not, um, oh, we, we can't have anybody else coming in. I mean, we need to be open and receptive to genuine refugees, but having watched COVID and the way our government has managed COVID, I think there's a lot more investment that needs to happen into all families. And I was a little bit concerned that there has not been a conversation about looking at um, how we might support Australian families around a living wage a baseline salary where everybody is looking at how do we share this wealth in this nation? How do we look after families, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, multicultural, multi-faith? And I think for me, I was very interested in terms of there has not been a conversation that how do we look at looking at the Australians we currently have in our nation? How do we better respond to public housing? How do we better respond to multiple worldviews? So I think. We also need to have a serious conversation in terms of what sustainability looks like for our nation as well. Is there an opportunity to start to look at population density, population growth? Because from my personal perspective, I don't think we're looking after Australians well enough that's already here.
0: Back in 1994, there was a submission to the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody report, which made a very direct closing statement in regards to population growth in Australia. With a slight paraphrase, it said towards the end, with any more population growth, this land will die and we will die with it. In 1994, Australia's population was 18 million, about 8 million less than it is today. Um, and on a read of a recent newsletter, you refer to population growth and the good work being done by Sustainable Australia Party. Um, so what is your perspective in regard to population policy in Australia, which you've touched on, um, and I suppose the um, connections and perhaps even political parties we should be voting for?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And I, as I said, um, it goes back to the point that I think... Um, we really need to have a bit of a stock take and a bit of a slowdown in terms of increasing um, the migration coming into this nation, because we have so many people who are in this country who don't have work. And I think, you know, there's a bit of an illusion, like I fully accept that, particularly in some of the industries, um, you know, such as fruit and vegetable picking that, you know, um, there is a, a, a policy whereby we're bringing Pacific Islanders into to um, work those crops, because one, there's an opportunity for benefit sharing and, you know, um, being able to invest back in those uh, Pacific Island nations. But I think we've almost reached a point where we need to really look at what does sustainability look like? Because when I look at the cities, I think the cities are totally full. They don't have the capacity right now to be able to manage the population growth that they have in Perth, in Sydney and Melbourne one of the critical ingredients of this is water. And there does not seem to be enough water to satisfy the cities now. And so what we're talking about is desalination plants and how we might be able to you know, capture grey water and do all these sorts of things. And I think we need to have a really serious look at what does sustainability look like because sustainability, from my perspective, is not just about sustainable development, it's about sustainable life. How do we live um, within these regions? Because when you look at the population density, it's all on the coast. A lot of the space in the middle is not filled up. And so everybody wants to live on the coastline and I'm not sure how feasible that's going to continue to be, particularly if we keep growing the cities when they can't provide the basic ingredients for sustainable life right now. So as I said earlier, my conversation is that I think we need to take a real hard look at ourselves, one, in terms of constitutional reform and looking at, you know, this conversation around regional governance, regional government, and how we might start to look at developing, um, just development around the framework of, okay, what's good for the regions? And how do we do that together collectively and make those decisions? You know, at the moment, there's a conversation that, from some people in politics that, Australia can't afford the living wage. And I kind of figure that COVID has really amplified that right now and that even this conversation around keeping New Start and those things are we are struggling as a government to do that. Yet we're very, very quick to have corporate welfare. We're very, very quick to invest into the multinational companies because we believe that that wealth is going to trickle down and we know it doesn't, it trickles off, it trickles offshore.
0: I've got a personal perspective on population policy, which I did want to check with you to see whether we might be vibing or whether from your perspective I might be um, way off. So, look, I personally see population growth, particularly the current economic migration policies that are pursued with virtually no consultation with First Nations custodians, as another manifestation and continuation of colonisation. The, and the idea that some on the left, that it's possible to have reconciliation and treaty in addition to high migration, open borders policy, I just don't see it as pragmatic or, or practically possible to, to, to balance those two. Um, just a conflict over uh, interest over land use for a start. Um, Furthermore, current migration policy is based around a narrow set of economic goals that benefit a few whilst doing nothing for the millions who do not have the means to come to Australia and who are affected by the human impact on a planet such as climate change. People of low socioeconomic status in vulnerable low-lying Pacific islands come immediately to mind. Um, What's your perspective on this, Anne?
1: Yeah, no, that's very interesting because I was... um... I did tune in to the Greenpeace report for the Pacific Islands on climate. And it was a very, very interesting conversation. And there were obviously Pacific Island leaders in the room uh, having a conversation. And one of their challenges was in regards to if we as a nation ignore our due diligence and our responsibility in regards to fossil fuels and we continue on this trajectory and some of these low lying islands, particularly places like Kiribati, become submerged, their question to the floor was, you know, if Australia um, fails to meet its targets and part of the cost is we need to leave our nation states, one of the questions was if they come to Australia, can they be sovereign people? So the Pacific Islanders are saying, okay, if you fail to show due diligence and our islands sink and we become climate change refugees then we want to be able to come to Australia and be recognised as sovereign people. And, you know, one of the things we say as Indigenous people is that if people come here and they're a visitor, we have a duty of care to welcome people in and to make this their home. And I said to them, well, one, you, you need to, in a way, get in line because we haven't been brave enough to have that conversation in our nation with Indigenous people, Aboriginal people. We haven't been brave enough to recognise that we are sovereign people, that our lands and our waters were taken by theft and that we need to have truth and reconciliation in regards to that process. But the other point I also want to remind our listeners is that we also have a history of 60,000 plus um, South Sea Islanders being brought to Australia to work the cane fields in Queensland. So we've got also a group of, in in a way, um, other Indigenous people who are brought to this land who have still also not been recognised in terms of their human rights, their climate justice. I think there's some really important questions to be, um, you know, heard and challenged and debated. And I believe that we have the capacity. I mean, when I look across this country and see, you know, the eminent people, I mean, who are here, we should be able to go into this conversation as serious grown-up Australians with the intelligence and the intellect to look at how do we start to look at our nation a different way. So from that perspective, I think, you know, there's a lot on the table. Um, As I said, you know, Indigenous people are lining up to say, when are we going to be recognised as sovereign people? The South Sea Islanders who came across as Kanaki people, almost 60,000 of them. Their human rights um, and justice and equity has not also been founded. And then importantly, we've got Torres Strait Islander people who are already as Australians, inverted commas, saying our islands are sinking. We believe Australia is responsible for what's happening and they are seeking justice. How do we care for the current population that we have? Because it seems that we're not doing that in a sustainable way right now.
0: Instead of growth, privatisation, exploitation and destruction, what kind of world would you like to see? You've, you've touched this on this already um, in, in several of your answers. I do note in several of the parliamentary submissions from the Matawarra Fitzroy River Council that traditional owners and custodians are guided by first law or custom customary law and the council's recommendations include reimagining the way heritage is understood and co-governance of water and land in which respects first law. Could the first law be a guide as to how we reimagine the way in which we live with the land and with each other?
1: As I said I've just submitted a PhD all about this and what we're saying is that we need to be looking at rivers rights and people arguing that not arguing people have got very solid evidence about rivers rights to live two-thirds of the world's rivers no longer flow that is a crime um and what we're saying is that how do we do this differently here in the kimberley so obviously one of the things we're saying is that we have a law we have first law this is a law of the land it is a law of nature and we believe that the first law argument needs to come in to frame legal pluralism a different way. First law is not conflictual. It's actually complementary. What we're saying is that first law are the values, the ethics, the codes of conduct for creating and sustaining peace and harmony and balance. So much of my um, work is around first law. And what we're saying is that these first law stories, we have to look at what are the meaning What is the meaning of First Law? And the meaning of First Law is to sustain harmony, is to sustain balance, is to sustain peace and to work in harmony with nature, not to dominate and commodify nature as a resource to be exploited. Um, So from that perspective, First Law can teach and share with our nation a different way of doing business. I was just quickly looking for a document that came out yesterday and it's called, from the United Nations, um, and it's called Making Peace with Nature. And I spoke a little bit earlier about when the settlers came, in their diaries they wrote about laughter, about peace, about plenty, about a world of, you know, utopia. This is the world we have, This is the world that has quickly spiralled out of control because we have walked away from nature. We have severed our relationship with nature. That's one of the things that we are showing in this documentary film that we've made, The Serpent's Tale, is that we need to live and work in harmony with nature. That nature, particularly animals, through observation and communication can teach us how to be fully human. When we look at Indigenous science and the knowledge making we have, it is to look at how we continue to live in a deep relationship with nature that gives us the indicators of well being, of happiness, of all of those things. So, from that perspective, first law is critical. It is to be seen as complementary to Crown law. It is a law for the commons, of how we protect the commons for the greater common good rather than protect the commons for a few greedy, predatory elite. So this is all about us working together, valuing our nation. When we look at the history of our nation, basically settler society has been at war with nature since the arrival of white people to this continent. We have exploited, we have destroyed, we have created ecocide, we have created a war with nature. And I was just looking at this document that came um, yesterday and... Basically, what it's saying is that we need to reestablish peace with nature. We need to reignite those key values of how do we live in harmony with nature? How do we look at different places and be very, very rigorous with our science to say, okay, if we're going to do development, particularly water extraction, uh, intensive agricultural growth, potential for fracking, then how is that going to create um, the balance and the harmony we need? Because when I look at these invasive developments that are being touted for the Fitzroy River, all we're talking about is creating foreseeable harm to the environment, to the people, and not just foreseeable harm to Aboriginal people, but foreseeable harm to people who live in the towns and the communities that are in the Kimberley. Why have we made a decision to frack the Kimberley and not frack the southwest? So there's a lot of conversation that we need to put on the table. It needs to be rigorous and grounded in both Indigenous science and Western science, and we need to be serious that we want to learn from the Murray-Darling Basin so we don't make the same mistakes here on the Fitzroy River. So, um, you know, as a scientist, evidence is critical in framing how do we look at just development on just terms now.
0: A recent book on degrowth speaks on the need to decolonize, uh, not only in regards to Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations, but indeed the entire colonial cultural anthropocentric mindset that presupposes infinite growth on a finite planet. For non-Indigenous people who are living on stolen land, do you have any advice on how we can be better allies with First Nations stewards and to re-envision a way of life that is in balance with the ecosystem and with each other? I'm aware that for many on the left, and I suppose I include myself here, and it's it's fantastic hearing you speak about working together. Um, I think there comes a realization of going you know what i was born in a family and society and an industrial system that was totally divorced from nature and understanding other cultures and a different response to their relations with each other and nature and once you're aware of that there's an awareness of the gulf Um, and so when I approach First Nations people I'm so acutely aware that there's a gulf there that sometimes I don't quite know where to begin so um, yeah it's a very open-ended and a bit of a waffly question but if you had any advice yeah
1: no this is a very important question you're asking me because um, what we say as Indigenous people is fall in love with where you're at So, if you're in the Melbourne, go and get to know the Yarra River, get to know the Indigenous leaders that are in Melbourne, get to look at what we call place-based governance, which is about, you know, building a relationship. It's all about relationship. How do you build a relationship with nature? How do you get to feel the country? How do you get to see the landscape where you live from a special way? So, you know, I'm also writing not just the PhD but publishing quite a lot of different information and One of the papers I'm currently writing at the moment is that Indigenous people can teach you how to see and feel and be in the country you're on um, in a different way. So whether you live in Melbourne, whether you live in Alice Springs, get to know the place base of where you live, get to see it as your home, form a relationship and an ethics of care and love First with the land and the living water systems and then open your mind because it's really interesting. But the majority of indigenous people live in in, live in Melbourne and Sydney. Sometimes people want to look for the exotic and go, oh well, the real Aborigines are in the north, or you know, this sort of thing. There are amazing leaders living in Melbourne and in Sydney and in Adelaide, working with indigenous people. You know what I mean? Like non-Indigenous people. And what we're saying is that Get to know these Indigenous leaders that hold the land, that are the guardians of that place. But first of all, get to build a personal relationship and ethics of care and love with where you're living. That is your home. You have an obligation to connect with that landscape that you're living on because you are a human being. And so therefore you have a fiduciary duty as a human being to get to know that place then you can feel brave enough to go I want to connect and find out who are the indigenous leaders what are they doing can I commit to any of the work that they're doing so what we're saying is that fall in love with the place that you're living because that's your home whether it's for one night one week or one lifetime the earth the place the city the land the rivers are all alive and they can connect you and teach you how to be a better human being and it's very, very interesting because once you see these values and ethics and you connect at this sort of human and nature level, your world will open up. Your world will open up and you will engage a different world because you will see and you will become a part of it. You know, one of our, my favourite researchers who's up here who's doing lots of amazing research with our senior people, she came back all excited one day after being here very, very quickly and she said, Anne, I heard the river waking up. So these are non-Indigenous people who once you show them how to see and feel the country where they're on, they can form their own relationship, one with nature and the environment but two with Indigenous people. So just remember those of you that are hearing this conversation that there are amazing Indigenous leaders right around the country doing this work. Um, One of the other projects I'm working on is called Regenerative Songline and we are currently making a map, an interactive map, that will have a lot of different projects in this website and on this map so that people who who think that they can contribute in some small and important way can look at where are these projects situated in regards to Melbourne, Sydney, Alice Springs, Darwin, you know, Kakadu, Cape York. So we also, as Indigenous people, understand that there are goodwilled and good hearted Australians out there who want to connect with Indigenous people, our lands and waters. And so, we're also, I'm also working on another project called Regenerative Songline. We're just making an interactive map as we, we speak, which will be connected into multiple websites so that people right around the country can get to make a, a real contribution to uh, Indigenous projects that are happening right across this land.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, connecting with Post Growth Australia Podcast and our listeners, Anne, um, and with me. I appreciate this so much. Um, I am severely crossing my fingers and all my legs and arms and toes for s- success to save the river. I'm in Tasmania at the moment, which is um, supposedly, you know, one of the last bastions of 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 pristine land in the world and um, through bushwalking through so many dead trees and post-logged land, I I feel a sadness and melancholy to the land. I feel um, a land that's groaning under the weight of just half a million people. In a sense you can feel it in the trees and in the rivers and in the ground. And just just to wind up, what are some of the upcoming events and campaigns for the Mutawarra Fitzroy River Council? For listeners who'd like to support your campaigns further, what can they do and where can they go?
1: Well, I think the most important thing is to get onto our website and register because we have an amazing concert happening on the 28th of February, 5pm in WA time and 8 o'clock on the East Coast, and we have got some amazing um, artists who have gifted their songs for the matawara. Um, Xavier Rudd, Missy Higgins. Um, my son will co-host the, the the event. We've got a beautiful poet that's on there. Um, what I'm saying is that stay connected to that matawara Fitzroy River Council website because, it, one, it'll take you to this concert at the end of the month, which is absolutely fabulous. Two is that we're also looking at how do we take the story of The Serpent's Tale and share it. Three, we also, I'm working with you know amazing legal scholars to look at how do we get first law into a conversation around legal pluralism. Fourthly, we've set up the regenerative uh, website. So there's lots of things happening out there. But I think the most important point is, um, I wanna finish with a word in my language called bugaragara. Now bugaragara means the past, the present and the future fused into this moment in time in which we must act ethically. So from that perspective, I also understand that we come to this from an approach of peacemaking because that's all we knew and that's all we know in terms of peace with the land, with each other, with nature and with fellow human beings. But it's very, very important that we also understand the strategies of war. And so when we look at the story of the Fitzroy River and that it belongs to all Australians, And we as Indigenous people have a duty of care to protect it, not just for now, but for future generations of young Australians who will come here one day. And so we need to understand the strategies of war and that when we are united, the underdog can win. And that's the story of the Franklin River. So it's very timely that you're in Tasmania at the moment because we believe that this is the next big story in regards to environmental challenges. We believe that there's huge potential for the new economies up here. We need to have just transition for energy right now, but we also need to know that there are new economies up here, which we call the forever industries, geoparks, biosphere reserves, bioprospecting. We have plants here that are amazing and much needed by humankind. So we as indigenous people, we want to shift from poverty to wealth creation. We need equity and we need this a way to look at how do we have the benefit sharing. But the Fitzroy River also is being held by very important traditional owners and what we're saying is that we have a duty of care to protect this river as the largest Aboriginal cultural heritage site in Western Australia and also the National Heritage Listed Fitzroy River. It belongs not just to fellow Australians but it indeed belongs to the world. And so from that perspective, let's stand in unity, get to know what the work we're doing here. We know that when we are united, we can develop a process of cooperation going forward. So thank you for the opportunity to share. Gali marble, which in my language is like, see you again when we meet. And so all of you who are listening, tune in to where you are, get to know where you're, you're living and Make sure that you fall in love with the place that is now your home, Australia. Thank you. Kali Omabo.
0: Listening to Post Growth Australia podcasts. I just interviewed Dr. Anne Polina of the Matawarra Fitzroy River Council with music from Kalajai with the track Yimaduwara. With many thanks to both for sharing your wisdom and your artistry. This episode of PGAP was made possible by the goodwill of Sustainable Population Australia. Spa, incidentally, I've just had two very successful public screenings of the documentary, To Kid or Not to Kid, as part of their Stop It Too campaign. I believe the documentary is now on Amazon Prime. What did you think of the episode and what do you think of PGAP? On PGAP's homepage there is a contact page. Please write to us to let you know what you think. Otherwise we would love you to take the time to review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. The more ratings we get, the more reach that critical conversations like this can reach a wider audience. I just wanted to finish by sharing that when I was interviewing Anne, I was just wrapping up a month in Tasmania. So many people love the nature and landscape and beauty of Tasmania. So do I, but I couldn't quite get past all the logging, the fire-ravaged dead trees and the really stressed landscapes. Anne reminded us to fall in love in the land in which we stand, but for so long all I could feel was sadness and melancholy. Back in Victoria and in between the spinning vortexes visiting Melbourne, I knew I had to visit Tidal River in Wilson's Promontory one last time. It was so wildly impractical after months of travel. But to Tidal River I drove and set up camp. As I drove into the rolling hills, A feeling of electricity moved up my neck. As I dipped into the rough waters of the beach and then walked along the beach to the offshore islands that rose up like sentinels, pangs of nostalgia rode in with the waves. As I sat next to the river and let my mind settle and stare at wonder at the water, the estuary, the cliffside, the heaths and forests that just so surrounded me like a cathedral, A tear rolled down my face in a sort of homecoming as I fell in love once again with the land. Thank you so much, Anne, for helping me to remember.